The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. I'm here with Tom Dobbins, who joins us every week and is responsible for kind of rounding up the very interesting guests that we have on Just Love. Why do we call it Just Love? Because the gospel is about love. And we kind of say just love, a little bit based upon the commandment that Jesus gave and basically spoke to the young man when asked about what must I do? And he said, um, you have to obey the commandments. You know them. He, Jesus said to the young man, love God, love your neighbor. And so we say just love, which is the root, the foundation, the basis of the gospel and the basis of our Catholic belief. Just love. And we say, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And then our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. So we build on the commandments of Jesus, which is to love God and to love neighbor. And self is in there because what it says is love your neighbor as yourself. So, I mean, this sounds a little bit maybe flip, but if you don't love yourself or if you kind of hate yourself and, you know, maybe some of us at times are a little embarrassed or ashamed by some of the things we've done and maybe it's not quite hate, but we certainly maybe hold ourselves in low esteem. Well, and if we're supposed to kind of love our neighbors as ourselves and we're holding ourselves in low esteem, maybe we have even a little bit of self-hate, then boy, does it mean we're supposed to do that to our neighbor? No, which is why we say just love, just love God, your neighbor, yourself. Because if we love ourselves and that's the love we're supposed to share with our neighbor, then we do believe that our world will be more just and it will be more uh, compassionate. And that's kind of what we're about on Just Love. We talk about um, those things going on in the world and we try to understand them from the perspective of our Catholic vision, our Catholic values, so that when we think about our own lives and how we live our lives, we're saying, oh, okay, that's what's going on. Here's something that's important to me as a Christian, as a Catholic, and therefore I'm going to think about it in this way. And when I have the opportunity to act, I'm going to act upon it in this way. So that's what we are, are about. Um, maybe a little bit later in the show, Tom and I will talk about the fact that we were just at the National Catholic Charities meeting in Cleveland. We gathered with a number of people uh, from throughout the various Catholic Charities programs in different parts of the country. I know actually I ran into Tom, our, our guest, who we had a couple of times based upon uh, to speak about the response and what was going on in Maui with the uh, fires that were there. So we ran into Rob uh, Van Tassel, who was who was there. And as I said, we're going to have him back on the show come Christmas or Thanksgiving to talk about how that community is celebrating the holidays mm -hmm. in the aftermath 
of what was a devastating situation for that uh, community. Um, so with that, Tom, let's go to our first guest. Our first guest is Christopher White, who is the Vatican correspondent for National Catholic Re Reporter. Uh, we've had Chris on the show before. I'm delighted to kind of welcome him back uh, to us. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's good to be back on with you. Good to see you. Good. I know. Uh, you, so I know you you are one of those globe trotters. You're <laughs> following the Pope around, or as we like to say, Chris, the Pope's following you around. But but wherever you kind of where where you where are you at the moment? Well, I, I'm in Rome at the moment because, as you know, this this month is the Pope's big synod, his big meeting on the future of the church. So it means the plane is parked and we're all here for a month. Uh, so uh, it, it, it also is 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 going to be busier than a papal trip, probably. So uh, right. no, no rest for the weary. All right. So, Chris, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later in sure. our conversation. But so tell us where you've been lately. Well, just two weeks ago, Pope Francis went for an overnight uh, to Marseille, France. It was a, a quick trip there uh, to primarily close out a big meeting uh, on migration. It was uh, all the, the bishops from around the Mediterranean region, from about 30 countries actually, had, had gathered in France uh, to talk about sort of the Catholic response to migration and how to welcome and integrate migrants into society. And uh, obviously that's a cause very close to Pope Francis's heart, a huge, a huge part of the work of, of, of Catholic charities. So lo lots of overlap there. Okay, um, and did you go on that trip? I, absolutely, absolutely. I, I wasn't gonna miss a chance to have French food for a few days, so. Okay, so tell <laughs> us a little bit about the trip. How did it go and what, uh, you know, what happened? Well, you know, it, it was a, a tough situation for the Pope because you know, he was arriving just uh, a few a few weeks after there was a new wave of migrants that had arrived uh, in uh, southern Italy, and basically all all of Europe was closing its doors, saying we we've accepted too many, we can't provide more support, and that sort of set the tone for the Pope's arrival because he was there to say, no, if if you if you want to call yourself Christians, you've got to find a way to to open your doors, open your hearts. Uh, and so that was the, the Pope's message against a, a pretty tough backdrop. Uh, and compared to most papal trips, it was fairly easy on us journalists because it was only two days and the schedule wasn't nearly as jam-packed. Uh, but the message itself was quite quite strong, quite forceful uh, and direct. So, Chris, was the gathering in Marseille a gathering of primarily or exclusively Catholic groups or was it broader than that? It was primarily Catholic groups from around the Mediterranean Sea, uh, but there were a number of French politicians in the in the room for the Pope's big address, including French President Emmanuel Macron. So, uh, you know, he was speaking primarily to the Catholics, but he also spoke, you know, to to the, the authorities, including, you know, the, the president of France. Yeah. You know, Chris, you correct me on this because uh, this is my impression from afar, not not so much from afar, but I, I know you talked about the uh, maybe a little bit of the tension with the Pope's message of welcoming and receiving more migrants and the reality of, you know, Europe clo seemingly closing its its doors. But I, I, I mean, my, not my suspicion, but my sense of things is, 
if you're speaking to a Catholic group, Catholic groups on a whole have been on the side of trying to welcome more migrants, more immigrants, et cetera. So in that group, was there a tension? I'd say broadly, you're absolutely correct. You know, those on the front lines providing care for those new arrivals are almost always Catholic groups. Uh, in terms of the overall public opinion, particularly in France, where he was, Catholics are a bit divided. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the hierarchy in France, they're they're on board with the Pope's call to welcome and provide support. Uh, but the public opinion is is pretty evenly divided, with a number of French Catholics saying, either we we've we've done our part already, we, we've maxed out our resources. Or the general fears that we see, not just in France, not just in the United States, but across the board, you know, what is this going to do to our culture? You know, it, it, are we going to be able to properly integrate these these new arrivals? Uh, and the Pope, you know, he, he spoke to those tensions and said, look, uh, you know, as Catholics, it's, it's our duty. Uh, but al also, you know, uh, uh, he said the, the Catholic Church has always stood with migrants. So this isn't something new. This is a temporary wave of new arrivals. But the Catholic Church has always been on the side of, of those in need, particularly migrants. Chris, we're speaking with Christopher Wright, who is the Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter. Um, and Chris, you made a distinction there, which I think I would say, from my perspective, is also relevant in the United States. I think the Catholic institutions, whether they be our schools, our healthcare institutions, Catholic charities, our parishes. I think they have generally been welcoming of newcomers, even when they come in large numbers. But I do think, you know, if when you take public opinion polls among Catholics more broadly, you probably do get a divide on what, quote unquote, immigration policy should be in a particular country. So I think that is a kind of pretty uh, important distinction that uh, that you make. So thank you for making that distinction. Um, so how was the French food? No, oh, it was great. I had the bouillabaisse and some wonderful croissants. And so I, I was very happy, very happy. It, it, it was a, it was a step up from the papal trip before that when when we were in Mongolia for about a week. Uh, and the the Mongolian cuisine uh, is a bit it was a bit more difficult to adjust to. <laughs> well, OK, so, Chris, let's go there um, and uh, let's begin with the cuisine since you brought it up. I, I mean, I want to be educated. What what kind of what is the cuisine, the food of of Mongolia? Lots and lots of goat. <laughs> OK, you know, you, you arrive in Mongolia and it reminded me a lot of the American West because just big sky, open fields, mountains, very beautiful. Uh, and then the city itself is very crowded. Uh, the, the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, very, very congested. It is the most polluted capital in the world in terms of just pollution. Uh, and the cuisine, you know, not especially... Um, uh, not a great variety. Now, there were some restaurants, you know, a lot of Chinese, Korean influences, and those were great. But the traditional Mongolian cuisine, because there are nomadic people historically, uh, the cuisine has always been, you know, pretty, pretty basic. Uh, again, a lot of goat because that's what they had easy access to. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, 
So again, give our listeners just a little bit of sense. Now, I think for some of us, you know, when we hear Mongolia, we say, oh, isn't that part of China or is it not part of China? Or give a give our listeners just a little bit of a geography lesson, a little bit of a history civics. We don't need the whole course. But sure. Just- I'll, I'll break it down as simple as possible. Mongolia has, has been free for about 30 years from Soviet rule, but it's it's, it's been under Soviet control, Chinese rule at various points, so it, and it's situated right in between Russia and right in between China, so two global hotspots, uh, and sandwiched in between is this nation that is actually quite large, uh, only about 3 million people in the whole country, um, but it is considered the one of the world's newest uh, and smallest Catholic communities, fewer than 1,500 Catholics in the whole country. Uh, so you can imagine uh, the trip look a lot, looked a lot different than, say, when the Pope goes to, like he did the month before, uh, to, to Lisbon, you know, in, in Portugal, a traditionally Catholic country. Here, there are only 1,400 people. I mean, that's the size of a, a Manhattan parish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so why do you go? Well, I think he the Pope went for two reasons. Ever since becoming Pope, he's focused primarily on Catholics in, in the peripheries. And this is certainly a congregation, a community that's on the peripheries. It's only been in existence for about 30 years. And I think he wanted to, to show them that he hadn't forgotten about them, that he, he's, he's there to, to encourage them, to show them that they are very much Catholic as well. The other reason uh, is strategic. I think, you know, because it is situated between two in two geopolitical hotspots, uh, it was the, the closest a pope could ever get to China. No pope has ever been to China. No pope has ever been to Russia. Uh, and this was his way to sort of inch close to both countries at a time in the world in which those two countries are very much in the news uh, to preach his message of peace. And, and Mongolia is, is one of those rare countries that has peaceful relations with both China and Russia. Uh, and that, that is something the pope wants to see more of is, is you know, greater successes in diplomacy. Uh, but he also wants to improve relations with both countries at a time when, you know, it's a bit difficult. So uh, we're speaking with Christopher White, the Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter, globetrotter with the Pope. He tags along wherever the Pope goes and he tests the cuisine, whether it be bouillabaisse or goat. He's very <laughs> open to a variety of, of cuisines. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I've seen the Pope on a number of times when he's come to World Youth Day, not this Pope, but previous Popes. Um, I've seen Popes, including this one, when they've come to uh, the United States. And it's quite a, you know, fanfare. It's quite a show. It's security, blah, 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 all of that. Um, so describe for our listeners a little bit the trip to this, to the margins in a country which is huge, but only has 3 million people and has 1,500 Catholics. So talk to, give our listeners a little sense of that trip. Well, I mean, it couldn't have been any different than when he came to New York in, in 2015. I mean, I'm sure you remember well, I certainly do, how the streets were just closed down. Traffic was a nightmare. You know, it was very clear that the Pope was in town and everyone knew it. You couldn't get anywhere. It was just, it was just awful. Um, and it made a real dent in everyone's life, Catholic or not. In Mongolia, 
not only did it not make a dent in things, the city operated business as usual. When the Pope was in the city's main square giving his first talk, there was a crowd of maybe 100 people. You know, it, it just didn't really attract attention because not only did, you know, most of the population isn't Catholic, but they don't even know who the Pope is. I mean, historically, it's a, uh, you know, it was communist for a long period and now it's predominantly Buddhist. I mean, Catholics are just such a tiny, tiny, you know, less than 1% of the population that when the Pope comes to town in a place like Mongolia, traffic goes on just as, as, as usual. You know, it's, it's not hard to get a dinner reservation. Hotels aren't booked up. You know, there are no major closures. So it looked, you know, night and day from, say, New York to, to Mongolia. Unless, I guess it's always a little good for one's humility. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, you are kind of used to the roaring crowds and the, the long groups of people lined up along the sides of the road to get, get a glimpse of the Pope. Uh, and, you know, it was a reminder in Mongolia that this isn't the, you know, the center of the world. <laughs> um, so where did, he, where did he go in Mongolia? How long was he there for? He was there for four nights in the, just in the capital, Ulaanbaatar. And, uh, you know, he's 86 years old and he continues to travel. He wants to travel. He always says getting out of the Vatican is what gives him life. Uh, but it also means that his schedule isn't as jam packed as they used to be. I mean, he could do a dozen events in one day early on in the papacy. Now, 10 years in at age 86 and with some mobility issues, you know, he typically does one or two events in the afternoon, one or two events in the morning, and then he calls it a day. So these trips take on a more a more humane pace. Uh, and I guess for the reporters also. Absolutely. I mean, now now we can have a proper meal in the evening and get some sleep. I mean, okay. we still wake up at an ungodly hour, but it, for uh -huh. the most part, it's, it's, a, it's a much more noticeable uh, pace of operating. So if you were doing a piece on the analysis of the trip, what would your analysis of the trip be? Well, I, th I think, you know, on, on one hand, it was a big success for the local church. You know, they referred to it as the event of a century for them to have, you know, the, the Pope, who's the head of 1.3 billion Catholics worldwide, focus on this community of, of 1,500 Catholics. So event of the century for the smallest Catholic population in the world. Uh, on a more geopolitical level, it was interesting. It was a real outreach to Chinese Catholics in particular, who, you know, the Pope couldn't go to China, so he went as close as he could. And the Chinese government seemed to like that gesture. I mean, they then uh, gave permission for two of two Chinese bishops to come to Rome this month for the synod that's taking place. And, you know, not to get into the weeds for, for listeners, but the, the Vatican and China have tense relations. And so for them to extend this, the, the, the invitation for two bishops to travel to Rome for this was considered a, a, a big deal in the Vatican. Yeah. And again, without getting into the weeds, aren't there like the good guy bishops and the bad guy bishops in China? I mean, I'm I'm using terms in terms of like the national ones, the Roman. Can you tell our listeners a little bit? You got to describe it correctly. I use bad <laughs> terms, so you. Well, to 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 give a, a big you know macro bird's eye view point of this, there are bishops that have been approved by the Vatican, 
and there are bishops that have been approved only by Chinese authorities, so, so the Communist Party in China. And of course, the Vatican does not recognize all the ones that have only been appointed or approved by the Communist Party. Uh, so that, that is a source of, of tension within the Chinese Catholic Church and, and the right. Vatican. So. All right. So we're speaking with Christopher White, the Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter. We're going to come back to Rome. So, but you don't know anything about what's going on in the Synod because isn't it like completely secretive, closed door? Nobody knows what's going on. Didn't, wasn't, that was a little surprise to me, I thought, when we're talking about synodality, transparency, openness. I was a little surprised that kind of, it seems like it's almost like a conclave in electing yeah. Pope. But that's, again, me from thousands of miles away. So what's well, going on? That that makes two of us. I mean, so just to, to bring listeners up to speed, all month about, you know, 450 bishops and, and representatives are in Rome for this meeting at the Vatican on, on the future of the church, asking a lot of questions about the church's practices and ministries and how it can become more inclusive. Uh, and on the opening day, Pope Francis basically said, I don't want you to go out there talking to the press. I want you to fast for media. Uh, and for many of us, certainly myself, uh, it was it's it, it was a message that is incongruent with this whole process because for two years, the Pope has been inviting all of the church to take part and say, listen, listen, and you know, we want to hear from you. Say what you want. You know, we we really are trying to be a more listening, more participatory church. And then all of these delegates arrive in Rome and the doors are effectively shut. Uh, and so in my view, it doesn't sync with the, the spirit of the event. Uh, and frankly, as a reporter, uh, you know, the Pope tells them not to talk and my job is to get them to talk. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's not going to slow me down from trying to talk to people in the room. And, uh, you know, I think the first few days, the, the delegates will be a bit tense and cautious about talking. Uh, but the official rules say use confidentiality, but also discernment. Uh, and my hope is that they lean into discernment and say, uh, I'm discerning that it's good to talk about what's happening here. Is that what um, is that what when they mean like background and that's what they mean like um, I can't quote the source because the source wasn't authorized to speak on this. And absolutely, well, absolutely. You're going to be reading a lot of stories with language like that in, in the coming weeks. Yeah, I think um, you know what they say about a secret, right? The only way to keep a secret among two people is if one of them's dead. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, no, it, it, I have to, my own opinion, it struck me as a little bit like strange to do it, but you know, but that's uh, so. What do you what you know? So, what do you think? What do you what What are you expecting out of this synod? Uh, well, this synod is taking place in two sessions this okay. October and next October, and I don't expect a lot of hard news this October. Okay. I mean, lots of questions will be asked about women's ministries and and how the church can better uh, reach out to those in the margins. Those are going to provoke some real heated debates, but I think next October is when we'll see much more of that. This October, I think, will be more setting the stage, letting these 400 or so people get to know each other, feeling as with if they can can build up some trust so that they can then ask some some tough questions. So, 
Christopher, from this point of view of how it's set up, is it the same 450 people this October and next October? That hasn't been confirmed, but that's the working idea, is that they will meet two, two years in a row, the same people, so that those relationships can mature and that these issues can mature as well. Right. I mean, you know, from my perspective, it seemed to me, and I mean, using that fancy word, synod and synodality i mean i've always translated it they're just going to have a fancy meeting is absolutely it's it's a clunky word it doesn't make sense to most people including most catholics uh and you know i i try to avoid using it even when i'm writing about it i say it's a meeting it's a summit (laughs) so christopher let me ask you a personal question you have um you're now working for you know one of the more well-known uh and longstanding uh, Catholic uh, period, uh, papers in the United States, National Catholic Reporter. You worked for a while for Brooks Online. Um, give us a little bit of your sense. Obviously, uh, you like working for Catholic media. Yeah, I think it's, you know, as a Catholic myself, it's a good chance to, to have a front row seat to what's going on in the church and to try to make sense of it for others. Uh, but I also, you know, both, um, you know, w- one of the major commitments of the National Catholic Reporter is independence. Uh, and so when necessary, it's a chance to, to hold those uh, in authority uh, to account and, and to push for transparency in the church. Uh, and, th- and that's important as well. I think, you know, it's um, good journalism, in my view, only helps the church when, when the journalism is fair and honest. Uh, and as you know, I certainly try to be, uh, then I think no one has anything to fear. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's especially relevant right now. There's, you know, there's a lot of things happening in the church, especially here in Rome. Uh, transparency is a good thing. Uh, and, uh, the Pope, the Pope should know that too. <laughs> uh, well, you know, also, you know, when he tells people to, to keep quiet, that affects your livelihood because you got to get people to talk. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm pretty confident that you will you will you will do it. I mean, uh, in in doing it. Um, so to our listeners, share final thing, and then I'll let you go. You've been very generous with your your time. Are there any particular issues that maybe are kind of simmering a little bit below the the radar screen that? Maybe don't don't make it to the top, like, you know, the ordination of women or some of those those issues, which, you know, are those hot button issues um, that you think our listeners should be kind of putting on their radar screen a little bit less kind of public issues that you think are important as we go forward with the church. I'd say sort of three issues that I suspect are going to get talked about a lot, and they're not the, the, the sort of sexy topics that everyone likes to talk about, but, you know, they, they still are important. And already just in the first two days of them of these these delegates meeting, I know for a fact that they've already surfaced. So the, the three things, one, seminary formation and how to basically train priests to become more more synodal, to use their language, but but to 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 be be more comfortable with lay people. So I think that's one part of it. The the other thing is adult faith formation. How adults in 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 the life of the church can still continue to grow in their faith, you know you know as adults and not just you know children that are being catechized. 
Uh, and a number of uh, people have also expressed concerns about young people. I think it's it's a real sort of alarm that, you know, you see these polls after polls uh, coming out of, you know, young people leaving the faith. And that has set off a number of alarm bells. And that's already getting in, uh, discussed inside the Senate Hall. It was one of which I thought, my perspective, very, very insightful article on I think it was a follow-up to World Youth Day. And this author, I thought, really hit it on the, on the you know, he said he thought Pope Francis was really good in kind of answering the question, who's welcome into the church? And it was a very inclusive, everybody is welcome. Todos, todos, todos. <laughs> yeah, total, total, total. But this author, and I don't even remember who it was, said, he thinks that maybe it was the wrong question. Mm. That the question that should be asked is, why bother? Yes, yes. You yes. know, and, and a little bit of my little parish here in, in New York, we have a young adult ministry. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, and there's a great deal, I, I think, of enthusiasm. But I think the question is, why should they bother? Yeah. You know, that's more on there. Why should they bother coming to church? living out their faith rather than doing doing other things. And, you know, maybe that's part of the your second and third thing, adult faith formation. Why should people bother? And young people, why should they bother, you know, participating in the church? I, I think that's right. I think we got a glimpse of even the Pope beginning to recognize that in his first homily where, where he said, um, you know, one, the church, we want a church that doesn't impose burdens on people, that's inclusive, uh, but also that is a, a sign of mercy in the world. So one reason I think the Pope wants people to bother is so that the world can receive mercy. Uh, and that, that, that I think is part of what's driving him. So, Yeah, I think that that is a very good point. Uh, Christopher White, you've been great with us. Any final thing that you want to uh, mention to us? Just Give our listeners a little preview. When's the next, when and where is the next papal trip? This is a great question. There is no papal trip now set on the calendar uh, for, for the foreseeable future. So the Pope is staying put here in Rome. Uh, he said, look, it's getting, it is getting harder. So I can't go as often as I like. Uh, but the, the rumor or the big question is, will he finally make his big homecoming trip to Argentina? Okay. He was elected 10 years ago. And he's indicated that he would like to go uh, in 2024, perhaps early 2024, to find, you know, he's 86 years old. Uh, and, you know, he hasn't seen Argentina since he left in February 2013 uh, to participate in the conclave that elected him Pope. So that that is the big question. So, Christopher, I have a recommendation. Okay. All My ears. recommendation is which cuisine haven't you <laughs> tasted that you want to. And I think that should be the criteria for where the Pope goes next. That, that sounds, in, in that case, we're going to, we're going to Iran. I want to try uh, Iran. <laughs> all right. I think that is, that is, um, that would be a trip. Let me tell you. That, that would be a trip. <laughs> yeah. The Pope has gone to the Middle East, hasn't he? He has. He's, he was with the, in 2020, he became the first Pope to ever visit Iraq. 
So, you okay. know, I think why not? Why not go to Iran? So. All right. Good deal. Christopher White, Vatican correspondent, national Catholic reporter, globetrotter with the Pope, taster of international cuisine and a very competent journalist reporting on important Catholic stories. Thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Great to be back with you. Great. Um, Tom, I think it's time for us to take a break. And before we do that, we'll remind everybody that they have a job to do. They have a job to just love God, just love their neighbor, just love themselves. And then we'll all do our contribution to making our world more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Weekly, we talk about what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Today, we had a conversation already with Christopher White of National Catholic Reporter on his trips with the Pope, what's going on with the Synod, uh, his last trip with the Pope dealt with the issues of migration, immigration. Um, and now as we are in the Columbus Day weekend, and even using that term sometimes uh, creates a little bit of, of concern among certain people, we're going to speak about uh, Columbus, his legacy, the controversies about his uh, his work, what he did, and to expose that so that we kind of can reflect upon it, see where we, uh, you know, to kind of form our own opinions about what's going on. So I'm delighted that our next guest is Professor Robert Call, who is, um, <clears throat> who was a professor of religious studies at King's College in Manhattan, and he is Senior Consultant to Religion Unplugged. He's written in the Wall Street Journal, Newsday, Human Rights Review. And so I'm delighted that um, Robert Cole is our professor, our former professor, is our guest today. Professor Cole, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Thank you. Thank you for That's having me. Great. So give our listeners a little bit. They can't see you. I can see you on Zoom. They yeah. can't see you. They can hear your delightful voice. But why don't you share with them? How'd you wind up as a professor? Well, my father was a professor. My grandfather was a professor. So I, I think it uh, runs in the family. Okay. So it's in the genes. Yes. So give, give a, you know, so fill in your biography just a little bit for a listener and um, just a little bit of it. Give a Give them a sense. Well, um, I think one of the most significant things about my biography is that I spent um, a good part of my life uh, in Asia. My, yeah. my my father worked in the Philippines when I was in high school, so I lived there. Um, after college, I or or during college, I spent my junior year of India in India. Um, after college, I went and I lived in China. So I, you know, I I I became a very interested in world religions, and um, I ended up getting a PhD in in uh, religion from Emory, and then I taught at the King's College when it opened 
here in Manhattan in 1999. Great. That is that is wonderful. You know, it's interesting. Um, periodically, when I'm talking to kids in high school about a variety of things, and they talk about college, mm -hmm. I kind of say to them, I say, you know, if I were redoing college now, my one criteria for where I would go would be a college that had a semester or a year abroad in China or Asia. Mm -hmm. And I, I say to them with a little tongue in cheek, I said, you know, I want to know more about the people who own me. Yeah. So, um, but so you, you were a little bit ahead of your time in kind of having the opportunity to, to, uh, to go there. Yes. Uh, that, that's wonderful. I mean, and I keep, when I keep learning new facts, it really frightened me. I think, correct me if I'm wrong or not, but didn't I read something that given the growth of the population in India, that it may well surpass that of China? It may already have. Okay. Yes. Yeah, which is, which is incredible to, yeah. to think about that. It really yeah. is. Um, so, so let's come back to, now let's come back to our contemporary topic, which certainly has a little bit of controversy surrounding mm -hmm. it. I mean, can I say it this way? If Columbus was right, he would have gotten to China? Uh, yes. Well, yeah. I, I, the, the odd thing about Columbus is that his calculations were all wrong. <laughs> um, in fact, the court said, no, Asia is 12,000 miles away. You can't, you can't sail west and get to Asia. Uh, fortunately for Columbus, the Americas lay between. <laughs> between. So that's the only reason that he, his mission succeeded and he survived. But so, he thought until the day he died that he had reached the Indies. Did he? Which, which yeah. would have been the, the Far East. Yes. Wow. So, so again, my geography is challenged. If there were no Americas, would it have been 12,000 miles? Yes, it is okay. 12,000. That's right. Okay. So, um, and there was no Panama Canal, right? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's good. So let, let's come up a little bit um, closer to the present. Um, and I mean, you've um, kind of written a little bit about Columbus um, and, you know, so, so talk, talk to our listeners a little bit about the current controversy and the current discussion about Columbus, his treatment of indigenous people. What, give, our, give our listeners just a little bit of primer on the conversation today. Well, the way I, I, what I say in my article is that Columbus was a genius at sea. He was a disaster on land. Okay. He, he um, I think the people who revere Columbus revere him because he, because he was an explorer and a sailor. He had enormous capacities in those areas. He had no capacity to govern. He, he was a disaster as a governor of Hispaniola. Um, he had no interest in governing. He had no aptitude in, in governing, and he never wanted to govern. He thought that he was going to go and set up a trading post um, and get a lot of gold. Um, but on his second journey, he brought 17 ships full of people, and he was pretty much an absent governor. He was interested in 
just kind of exploring the region and uh, lots of atrocities occurred on Hispaniola, that's present day Dominican Republic and Haiti. Mm -hmm. And um, um, it was under his watch. So, so he right. bears some responsibility for that. A civil war broke out among the Spanish settlers on, on Hispaniola. And because he was leading the expedition, kind of almost ex officio, he kind of became the 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 chief governor of the island. Yeah. Well, yeah, he uh, well, Queen Isabella gave him the island when he discovered it. She she declared him to be governor. Um, she stripped him, though, of that title. Um Columbus, it's, it, he, Columbus was as controversial in his own day as he is in our day. He this came back from his first voyage a national hero. Okay. He came back from his third voyage in chains. And he spent, I think, six months in prison or something. Oh, so speak to us about that. So speak to us about the le his his leg legacy or his the reality in his own times. Yeah, yeah, he was, I, I, and again, he he was uh, lionized as a great uh, sailor and explorer after his first voyage. After his third voyage, he was um, considered a, a criminal for the way uh, Hispaniola had been governed under his watch. Um, Queen Isabella stripped him of all of his titles. Huh. And he ended his life well, he was never allowed to go back to Hispaniola. He could never set foot. That was that was a rule that she um, imposed on him. And um, he uh, died a pretty much a broken man um, at the age 55. He was he spent the last part of his life trying to uh, claw back some of his titles. Uh, did he die in Spain? Yes. Yeah. Uh. So say a little bit more about the disaster he was at a governor that wound up him in chains going back to Spain. Just say a little bit more for our listeners. Well, uh, there were a lot of um, the settlers there uh, had committed a lot of atrocities against the Native Americans. They um, also uh, were were fighting against Columbus's restrictions uh, on them. And uh, a group of the settlers created a break-off colony. So there was actually, Hispaniola was divided. There were, there were um, Spaniards fighting against Spaniards. Uh, Columbus hanged a couple of the rebels. Um, and when an investigator from Spain came over to, to investigate the island. Uh, his, his name is Bobadilla. He wrote a very uh, damning report uh, about Columbus that Queen Isabel read. And um, that's when she stripped him of his, of his titles. Uh, Bobadilla became governor of Hispaniola and the atrocities continued. Many, many people see him as even worse than Columbus, ah. including De Las Casas. De Las Casas, Bartolomeu De Las Casas, he was um, an apologist for Columbus uh, dur dur during Columbus's lifetime. Uh, and according to his reports, uh, things got worse after Columbus uh, left. 
We're speaking with Professor Robert Call, who's the former professor of religious studies at King's College. And um, he has um, you know, done some research into Columbus. Um, so bring us up to speed today is to what's the controversies now about about Columbus? Give us give us a little bit of a summary of that. Well, you know, the Columbus has, since the very founding of America, uh, been a person we've projected all of our um, hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties onto. The founding fathers, and and very well, the 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 person, the Columbus as a person, has very rarely aligned with our perceptions of Columbus, Americans' perceptions. Uh, the founding fathers saw in Columbus this enlightenment. Um, anti-authoritarian figure, which he was not. Right. You know, Washington Irving saying that Columbus believed the world was round and the Spanish Catholics believing the world was flat, that is pure fiction. <laughs> um, so the Italian-Americans, for the Italian-Americans, Columbus was the first immigrant, really the first American. He was a way of um, uh, for Italians to assert their, their belonging in this country. And that's why Italian-Americans revere him. He, he's a man, Columbus is a man of humble origins who um, worked his way up to become a kind of venture capitalist. Mm. And Italian-Americans uh, revere him. They, they I mean, Italian-Americans wanted him canonized as a saint. Uh, and, professor, professor Call, did he ever set foot on the mainland of the United States? No, he, he set foot in Venezuela. Okay. Mainly South America, but not the U.S. Okay. Uh, um, and then, it, and you know, in the 19th century, conservative Protestants disliked Columbus because of his Catholic right. faith. Uh, things have really flipped in the 20th century. In the 20th right. century, conservatives tend to like Columbus. Progressives tend to dislike him. And they... Uh, the progressives tend to blame him for all of the atrocities that committed uh, that were committed in his wake. Right. Yeah. If I, but if again, and I'm I haven't you know reflected on the timeline, but I would kind of say, you know, even towards the end of the 20th century, Columbus was still considered. We celebrated Columbus Day, and there wasn't a lot of, but. <laughs> In the 21st century, you know, they want to strip statues. They want it. And I'm not sure. Um, in some ways, we also celebrate Indigenous People mm -hmm. Day. Is it the same day or when do yes. we? Okay. Yeah. They, in fact, it's kind of a way of replacing Columbus. Right. That's the right. movement. So again, and this is for me personally, maybe our listeners are interested. Is there a good biography of of Columbus that you would recommend that's that's neither hagiography or you know completely you know condemnatory that is really tough uh, that's one reason i wrote the article cuz i couldn't find one okay um i there was a bio, there is a biography from the 1940s samuel elliot morrison's biography okay that's oh. interesting um samuel i i, I Samuel Elliott Morrison, I believe he led a group of Harvard students 
okay. um, to make the same joy voyage that Christopher Columbus made. Ah. Um, and uh, so he he tends to have respect for Columbus as a sailor, but also right does rejects this idea that he was any kind of hero or saint. Hey, Professor Call, thanks so much. I learned a whole lot. Uh, I'm sure our listeners did. And I love your line that he was, I'm going to get it wrong. He was a master at sea and a disaster on land. Yep. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Professor Robert Call, former professor of religious studies at King's College, who has written an article, Remembering Columbus, Blinded by Politics. Thanks for being with us on Just Love. Thank you. Great. Tom, I think we'll take a break. We will be back in a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. And we are in this Columbus Day weekend, Indigenous People weekend, um, and kind of in the middle of fall, at least in the Northeast, but we've had a little bit of a resurgence of, of summer. Tom, what's your, do you have any special fall activities that you like to do? Hmm. Uh, I, I love the autumn at Seer. One thing that I do do is I always make sure I buy a pumpkin. So okay. that's my thing. I always go looking for, and I look for the best pumpkin I can get. And I usually try to get it like around this time. Like, so I'll have it through Halloween and then I got to throw it away because it starts to rot. But that's my, that's my fault. <laughs> so a couple of things. One is um, I, I'm not a connoisseur of pumpkins, but pumpkins are of three sizes. Oh, get okay. the big guys. Mm -hmm. Okay. You get the kind of what I call the medium regular size guys pumpkins. And then you get the um you get the um small pumpkins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like them all, but I really like the small pumpkins because you can put them in different places. So you can right. put them in different places. And and I know Tom. Given the smallness of your apartment, <laughs> you're not you don't do a lot of cooking in your apartment. Correct, Monsieur. Very um, little cooking, a lot of ordering in. <laughs> but but um rather than throw out the pumpkins, you can make pumpkin soup. Oh, okay. Now that's you know, I've never tried that. Yeah. That will have to be something I'll have to ask you for the recipe for once a year. That seems a daunting task, but maybe well, I'll try with the baby pumpkin. No, actually, here's what you do. Okay. When you're about ready to get rid of the pumpkin, mm -hmm. give it to me. I'll okay. Make pumpkin soup, and I'll give it to you. Oh, that's perfect, Monsieur. That's okay. I would say that so would be that would be better. That is that's good. <laughs> hey, thank you for joining us on Just Love this week. Um, grateful for you listening to us. Hope we kind of increased your understanding of some of the issues going on in the world and provided a little bit of insight into them from our Catholic perspective. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 